the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that this message can be an encouragement to you today. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist at extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com. Morning, everybody. Welcome. Special welcome to, um, I've, like my dad, I've got a bit of a habit of um, collecting mother figures. Um, and one of them is here today, which, yeah, which is Anita. So, yeah, very warm welcome to you, Anita. Um, and please give her a uh, say hello to her uh, before she leaves. Yeah, so once again, it's a pleasure to come and, and share with you all this morning. So, uh, yeah, oh, it's been updated. So, <laughs> uh, we're making our way through Hebrews. It's been a few weeks. Uh, last week was Hebrews 3 about uh, Jesus, our high priest, and now, hold on, I'm just going to come down here, and now we're on to Hebrews 9, um, yeah, big leap, eh? Uh, which is about, uh, pretty much like most things in Hebrews, it's about a comparison of a old covenant or previous covenant to new covenant. So uh, we're going to read through the first five verses of Hebrews 9, if that's possible, thank you, Luca. And then we're going to go some places from there. So Hebrews 9, 1 to 5 uh, reads, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot speak particularly. Cool. All right. So first off, just I should mention in case anyone was wondering, a, a covenant is like an agreement. Um, so it's sometimes with comes with like oaths and ceremonies. It's not just contractual, it's like relational as well. So it's like the covenant of marriage. It's like a partnership. It's working together towards one common goal and you make certain promises to each other. So the Bible's got a few covenants. Um, There's the one between God and Noah, the one between God and Abraham, the one between God and the King David. Um, There's also covenants between, like I said, with the marriage, there's, uh, there's covenants between people too, like King David and his friend Jonathan. But the one we're going to be looking into today has got to do with a man named Moses, which you're probably already well aware of. So uh, it's a com- covenant called the Mosaic Covenant. And uh, we're going to compare that with what's called the New Covenant, which is New Testament, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the Jewish readers of this letter, they would have been really familiar with this Mosaic Covenant uh, because they probably lived most of their lives like under its rules and its regulations and, and by its influence. So once Jesus came along and, and unveiled the New Covenant, um, this would have been a little bit of a shock for them. Um, so this, this Mosaic Covenant had all these promises from God, like that he's going to make the nation of Egypt, um, a holy kingdom of priests, and and they're going to spread God's blessing, uh, or he's going to, and glory to all the other nations. It also lists out all the blessings associated with following his covenants and his commandments, and then it 
also lays out all the curses um, that's involved with not following it. Because God's desire is that um, Israel is, is set apart as this holy example to the rest of the world. And so this chapter 9 deals quite a bit with the sinful nature of man because God wants to separate Israel from that too. So it's basically all the stuff that's contained in the books of Bible that you speed read through to get to the interesting bits, um, like the giant slain and the crazy visions of heaven. Um, or was that just me? <laughs> I, I, I read construction specifications and detailed plans for a job. And I must admit, like, all this talk around, like, this thing being 15 cubits long and five cubits wide, covered in silver, slotted into a pole that's one cubit wide and 10 cubits long, covered in gold, kind of sends the brain to mush a little bit. So we're going to unpack some of that stuff today. And and if that sounds torturous to you, I'm sorry. Um, Please bear with me. My hunch is that some people aren't super interested in digging into old covenant matters they would say it's all about jesus now old done away with new has come and in one way i agree with you but i'm just going to quote the following well-known verse it's it's 2 timothy 3 16 it says all scripture is given by inspiration of god and is profitable for doctrine for reproof for correction and for instruction and righteousness so with that in mind we read in hebrews 8 and 9 that these familiar tabernacle items and ceremonies these these earthly things the candlestick and the table of bread and sacrifice of animals and all this other stuff is described as uh, a shadow or a, or a pattern of heavenly thing heavenly things it's like we've got a shadow and it is kind of us but it's not it's, it's an outline of us but it's it's not us so yeah this this pattern is um, is a model something that's used for design so Jesus often described heavenly things in the context of earthly things. Um, we went through this a few months ago. Um, like, for example, the kingdom of heaven is like a seed, or the kingdom of heaven is like a tree, or the kingdom of heaven is like a man who has a vineyard. So I believe, and I'm sure many of you do as well, that, that there's actually heaps of understanding to be gained about the ways of God, um, particularly the ways of salvation, if we study past covenants. And there's even a psalm. It's 77 verse 13 that says, Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? And what's more, I'm I'm also kind of fascinated by this concept that there's a heavenly tabernacle, but we're going to discuss that a bit more next week. Okay, so going back to the beginning for some context, uh, this Mosaic covenant um, was given from the Israelites after they had miraculously escaped from Egypt. So we talked about that a couple of weeks ago in Communion. They've crossed the Red Sea. Uh, They've watched Pharaoh's entire army be swallowed up by the water. And and now they're traveling through the wilderness. When when God says to them in Exodus 25.8, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Now, can I tell you what my reaction as an Israelite to that would have been? Not a good idea. (laughs) Did you see what this God just did? to all those Egyptians? What if he gets angry and does the exact same thing to us? It's like your parents inviting the principal of your school over for dinner. Uh, it's not a good idea. Like, what, what's good, what good is going to come out of this? It would have been a really vulnerable situation. And talk about two worlds colliding. 
Now Moses, the leader of the Israelites, has been commanded by God to go up to Mount Sinai and there he receives the Ten Commandments. And while he's up there, it says in Exodus 20, 18 and 19, and the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed, so removed themselves and stood off far off from it. And they said to Moses, speak thou with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. Moses basically says in verse 20, don't be afraid. God's testing you, and your, and your fear of him will keep you from sinning. All right. Yikes, how's that for a push in the right direction? And then after that, after all that, the same God who single-handedly destroyed the most powerful nation on earth at the time, that was the Egyptians, and produced all the thunderings and the lightnings and the fire and the earthquakes and straight up terrified this nation of Israel, is now asking them to build him a sanctuary or a sacred shelter where he can dwell in the middle of them. Now, I've been in construction for quite a few years, and I've worked for companies that have faced some pretty demanding and intimidating clients, but I think this request would have taken the cake. Those, these people, they didn't want anything to do with that. They wanted to be physically distant from God out of their fear for what they've seen him do. But God says that he wants to be in the middle of their camp. And when he says in the middle of their camp, he means in the middle of their camp. Do we have a layout of... Yeah. So the tabernacle's the one with the red and the little yellow, if you can see that. Everything else is literally ordered around it. He is smack bang in the middle. So God goes on to describe what this dwelling place would look like. But first off, you may have picked up there's some various words floating around. There's like tabernacle sanctuary, temple, that word's also going to come up. These are all different words with slightly different meanings, but they're all essentially describing the same thing. Tabernacle was the portable tent sanctuary version. So it's portable so that they could um, set it up, then dismantle it and move it on to the next location. Um, and then there's the temple that's described later on in the Bible, and that's like the permanent-ish, because it gets destroyed, version built by Solomon and then repaired by Nehemiah and so on and so forth. It, it's also described as God's house. But they all contain this thing called the sanctuary, which is the shelter of God, the dwelling place of God's presence. And yeah, they all look slightly different, but the important items that were contained within, like we've talked about the candlesticks and the showbread and, this, and these altars of sacrifice, they're the same. The intent is all the same. So just thought I'd notice that. Now... In my experience, some clients don't really have a clue what they want to build. They just know they want a building or a house. But God knows exactly what he wants. He meticulously lays out this blueprint, this pattern for his tabernacle. In Exodus 25 to 27, he, he details the exact sizes of everything and the colors and the layout, what kind of materials, even the furniture. And his, uh, his taste is pretty classic, gold mostly. <laughs> Fine linen, blue, purple, scarlets, and the craftsmanship, a craftsmanship sorry, is to be at such a high level that, that God himself blesses some, some men with special skills. This man, um, Bezalel, he, he blesses him with a special skill and makes him like a master craftsman. So the end product from the outside looks like this, which is quite a bit smaller than I kind of imagine in my head. We're just going to focus on the outer court 
part for now, which is this part. Do you know do you have the next one? Yeah. So outer courtyard is the part with the altar and the laver in it. And then next week we're going to have a look at some of the rest. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the outer court is made up of a few elements. Uh, firstly, it's this kind of fence uh, made up of timber poles and fabrics. Definitely doesn't look goat proof, um, speaking from experience. And <laughs> with an entrance gate at the front. Uh, then we have this big bronze altar uh, where the offerings took place. So out of all the tribes of Israel, um, the tribe of Levi were called by God to be the priests. So back at that original God's camp layout part. Thanks, Luca. You would have seen like that these, um, these clans of the Levites were right around the tabernacle. They're the ones right in the middle. So yeah, they're called by God to be the priests to look after this tabernacle and, and, to, and to perform the services there. Um, so the people of the other tribes, they were allowed to enter in the gate, um, but they, they, didn't want to, they couldn't enter the tabernacle itself. Um, not that they probably wanted to, to be honest. So the people of Israel would bring all these offerings to the priests, and these offerings are primarily described in the book of Leviticus. So we've got burnt offerings and meat offerings and offerings of grain, peace offerings, sin offerings, trespass offerings, which were guilt offerings. But we're just going to look at the burnt offering. So uh, there's circumstances around it. it. It's to be a bull or a, or a lamb or a goat. And if you're especially poor, a pair of turtle doves or pigeons. So they were to be fit young animals without blemish in their prime. And the person offering the sacrifice would, would lay their hands on the head of the animal they would, they would confess their sins and, and it's called relate to this animal. And then they'd kill it and cut it up with their own hands, which must have been slightly traumatic for the animal lovers of that time. And then the priests, they get the blood, they sprinkle it around, and the priests are the one that burn it all on this, on this altar there. It all kind of seems a little bit strange now to us, doesn't it? But to the Israelites, this animal sacrifice was not a new thing. It, was, uh, it actually started in Genesis. God killed animals and, and, uh, and gave the skins to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. And also Abraham sacrificed, um, Noah sacrificed, there's just a few. Uh, and this is because in, in Leviticus 17, 11, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is for the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. So atonement is a bit of a big word. That means the action of making amends. So restitution or payment. So I like to think of it as, as payment. Um, and Hebrews 9.22 reminds us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. So there's no cancellation or, or, or covering of sins without the shedding of blood. In this case, the blood was of an animal. So then we've got this thing called a laver, uh, which is this large brass bowl filled with water. Do we have the picture of that one? Yeah, nice. It was really hard to find a good picture of this. So yeah, that's the, that's the laver, um, and it was used by the priests for ritual washing, which you can see they're doing there. So they would wash their hands, and they would wash their feet in particular, and this was like a, a cleansing before they entered the tabernacle, the actual building part itself. So the tabernacle as a whole became this place where you met with God, like the, dwelling, the dwelling place of his presence. And you, you couldn't just rock up there whenever you wanted, uh, or however you wanted. 
there's certain rules and the tabernacle served as this like central location um, for this rule book on engagement with God. Just like we've got rules, albeit kind of unofficial, for our relationships with each other. For example, if, if I'm going to ask my dad for something, I better have something to bargain for in return. Like, can I borrow the mower? I promise I'll completely fill it up with gas when I'm done. Or I'll help you split the firewood if I can have as much kindling as I can stuff in the back of my car afterwards. It's, it's quite transactional. It's like you, you give and you get or you get, and so you give. Um, and this Mosaic Covenant is also quite conditional. Um, so in Leviticus 26, 2-5, it says, this is the Lord speaking, um, he says, You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence um, my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk on my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And your threshing shall reach unto vintage, and the vintage shall reach until the sowing time. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in the land safely, dwell in your land safely. So if you follow the conditions of the agreement or the covenant, then you reap the blessings or rewards. There's also conditions for your own personal safety. For example, um, if you're going to tell my beautiful wife, Juliet, bad news, you call her first, preferably from far away, and then you tell her quick, like you bullet point her, and then you pretty much hang up. And then you take your time getting home. And by the time you do, she will sufficiently stewed on it, processed it, and Lord willing, accepted it. (laughs) And then that allows for just a a quick apology, minimal groveling. It's good. (laughs) But she knows what she's like. (laughs) But, But seriously... In the case of the tabernacle, it was much more life-threatening. The priests had all these things that they needed to do before they were considered ceremonially sanctified. So that means their sins being temporarily covered. Enough to carry out their duties and, and venture into the presence of God. For example, we, we talked about it, they had to wash themselves. They also had to wear the right clothes. Ones that went to revealing, it says. Couldn't drink strong wine. I uh, couldn't drink wine or strong drinks, so no alcoholic beverages. And they actually offered animal sacrifices for themselves as well as others. So on and so forth. So Moses, leader of the Israelites, he's got a brother named Aaron. And Aaron's this first appointed high priest. And he had two sons, and they also were priests. And they went a little bit rogue. They didn't follow the directions as instructed by God to Moses, and they learnt the very hard way. Uh, it says in Leviticus 10, 1 and 2, and uh, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them as his censer, which is like this little thing they offered incense with, and put strange fire therein, and put incense therein, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Serious business. So the fear of the Lord is often described as like reverence, or a, I've heard people say a healthy respect for the Lord and who he is. If I was one of the other priests there on that day, uh, witnessing Aaron's sons being burned up for offering a, um, an improper sacrifice, healthy respect is probably not the first thing that would have come to mind. <laughs> I would have been terrified. 
So this, this well-known American pastor, his name is Paul Washer, he, he often says, the scariest thing about the scriptures is that God is good. Now, why would we be scared of the fact that God is so good? Because we are so not. <laughs> I've often thought, I've said it up here before, God, why aren't you doing something about this sin in the world? We read all these horrible things. And it's, I got challenged by a friend once who said, yeah, what if he started with you? And I thought, yeah, <laughs> fair point. God's this perfect balance. We've got these following verses, like Hebrews 12, 29 says, our God is a consuming fire, like those priests found out. And then contrast with that with one of the many verses that describe his loving character, like what got brought up today by Neil. So much so that it leads the Apostle John to write in 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. So you might say, well, why all the sacrifice and killing? Is God so good and loving? Why can't he just forgive us? Because he is so good. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says he is just and upright. So I'm going to attempt to use the classic Ray Comfort line for a quick example. So if Jeremy and Janet, which were not here, but if Jeremy and Janet were, God forbid, attacked at Countdown, robbed, car stolen, the police catch the guy. Everyone shows up to court and the judge says, okay, Mr. Criminal, the evidence is all here. Uh, You're clearly guilty. Um, We've got record. You've done this kind of thing before. But because I'm such a kind and loving judge, I'm going to let you go. Is that a good judge? It's a horrible judge. (laughs) It's an unjust judge. And God is just. So sin has consequences, which is death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And what are wages? Payment. Payment. So the payment you receive for sin is death. But because of God's love for humanity, the payment, the ultimate payment, comes in the form of his only son. So that same verse finishes, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So, as you probably guessed, the sacrifices on that altar, if we could bring it back up again, guys, were um, a foreshadowing, a shadow a shadow example of the sacrifice that Jesus made for our sins. So, we're reminded of this, Hebrew 9, 13 to 15. It says, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament. And by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions or sins that were under the first testament, they which are are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance." So in other words, if those bulls and if the if the blood of those bulls and goats, yes, they were spotless in our terms, um, but they weren't perfect. If the blood of the bulls and goats could temporarily sanctify or make holy, cover the sins of these Israelite people, then how much more does the perfect blood of Christ, God Himself, cover our sins, redeem us, and give us life? Um, so we were guilty. Jesus paid the ultimate price. And Jesus doesn't just forgive sin. God doesn't just forgive sin he he makes a way for us to be for us to be right to be justified and that's through jesus paying the price 
So it says in Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. So it's only faith in Jesus that gives you the saving power of his blood. I'm going to steal another Ray Comfort line. I really like it. It's you can believe in a parachute, but to be saved, you've got to put it on and trust in it. So the Israelites sacrificing animals at this altar, they had faith too. Like they had faith in the process. That's, that's what brought them through it. And they must have had faith or else why would they waste such a perfectly good animal? And they'd seen things. So it was actually their faith that made the difference. Through the study of this, I always used to think that Old Testament covenants were works-based. But really they weren't. They had works associated, but actually we do as well. But they were still faith-based, but they just had a shadow version. They didn't have a, a revelation like we do. So in summary, I know it's been a lot. Do, do we as Christians have to perform daily sacrifices? Not animals, but ourselves. The Apostle Paul said that he died daily. Um, and in Romans 12, we're called to present, it says, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So like those priests, we've got a service. Just like those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice is the best that someone could offer. The best lamb or the best goat, peak condition, not the scraps. We can't live for ourselves and give God the leftovers. Um, that's just not an acceptable sacrifice. It must be everything. Nothing of that animal was left over. I think we need to remind ourselves, I'm speaking to myself here, of this daily so we aren't tempted to climb off the altar and, and climb onto the throne. Also, Romans 8.13 says, Put to death the deeds of the body. Mortify the deeds of the body. When these people brought these animals to the altar, they, they did the dirty work as such. Like they had to physically, with their own hands, put the animal to death and cut it up. And I feel like this could potentially be a bit of a reminder for our own sins that we struggle with. Yes, we've got the Holy Spirit to help us, and, um, and that is a great help, a comforter. But we also need to get our hands dirty as well. <laughs> we, we actually need to be the ones that, that see it through. We may... We may not give the biggest part or the whole part, but we do have a part to play. So do we need to perform daily washings of our hands and feet in a brass laver? No. But 1 Peter 3.21 talks about baptism. Um, it says, The light figure whereunto even baptism doth now also save us, not the putting away of filth from the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what else are we called to be washed in? Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. So we're called to be washed by the word, sanctified by it. Um, and we're also privileged to be exposed to the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Ghost which he shed on us abundantly through Christ Jesus our Lord, Titus 3, 5, and 6. So when I read all these Old Testament scriptures, I do feel very blessed to be on this side of the cross. <laughs> Under a, a better covenant, um, not having the shadow of things to come, but the fulfillment of these things through perfect work of Jesus on the cross. So I get to have that clean conscience towards God and the promise of eternal life. 
still got work to do. I've still got, I've still got services. But Jesus once took care of that, of that sacrifice. So in closing, I'm going to say maybe this is the first time that you've, you've heard about Jesus and you're interested in, in knowing more. Here's some good news. So, so that entrance to the outer court, everyone was welcome through that entry. Everybody could come and get right with God. And, and Jesus himself says in John 10, 9, I am the door. So by me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture, find food, find life. So yeah, today we're going to try something a little bit different, if that's right. If, if you wish to talk more about what it means to have faith in Jesus and have your sins wiped clean, and I'd ask that maybe you just stay seated after the service finishes and, and one of our elders or leadership team will, will come and attend to you. And the same thing if you need prayer. I know sometimes coming up the front and stuff like that can be a little bit intimidating. So I'll just put that out there. Come up the front too if you want. But yeah, I'm just going to leave it like that. Next week, we're going to venture into the tabernacle and where we explore further items. And we're going to learn, hopefully, what our new role as priest actually entails and also look at the Holy of Holies. So I pray that we, we, yeah, we see you here for that again. And um, I'm going to close in prayer now and then hand back to the worship team. So, yeah, Heavenly Father, thank you that your word, that we are sanctified by the washing of your word. And thank you that your word is, is so deep and so life-giving and, um, and that every bit of it, um, Lord God, can be used. Um, I pray it has been used. Yeah, we, uh, we surrender the rest of this week to you and um, ask that you'd be putting on our hearts um, things from this message, Lord God, that you want us to look at, highlighting things. And we ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd help us put to death yeah, the deeds of the flesh, Lord, things that you're not happy with in our life. And we ask this, yeah, um, we ask for your strength to do this, Lord, because we know that we, we can't by ourselves, but we want to do our part. So please, Lord, strengthen us, uh, we ask, in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. All glory and praise due to him. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Huntley Baptist Church Podcast. We hope that it has been an encouragement to you. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist at extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com.